First Thessalonians, and this is where we're up to now. You've been pre-warned about content. Not that it's going to be overly graphic, but just thought I'd say so. Let's open up in prayer as we come before God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that all that you provide for us is for our good. We thank you that in the things that you promise and you lay before us, which we can see are good, we know they're good. But even the things you lay before us that might go against the grain of the world in which we live in are still ultimately the most beneficial and the best thing for us. We thank you that you are a loving Father who always has our best interests at heart, who cares enough to warn us away from the things that will do us harm and damage. And so, Lord, as we look to your word, we look to it not as the words of men, but as the very word of God given to us, that we might know who you are, that we might rightly know who we are, and how we can live in relationship with you and live a life that is pleasing to you. Help me by your spirit to communicate your word clearly and help all of us, myself included, to hear and respond with a heart that wants to do what is pleasing in your sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I know God's will for your life. That's a big claim, isn't it? But I do. A lot of people have made that claim. Sadly, some people have made that claim a little bit irresponsibly. Someone might come up and say, God told me that you should do this. And what they then go on to explain might actually look very different than what God has already made clear in his word. This is not working anybody. Well, sometimes we use it almost in a joking sort of sense. As though like a young guy who likes a young lady and he's trying to convince her and she's not quite convinced and as a last big gun he pulls out, you know, it's really God's will that we should be together. Or sometimes we use it in a joking environment, maybe in, within a church setting, you've got someone who's really valuable to the ministries that you have and you try to convince them that it's God's will that they should stay at that church for all of their life. But they're not appropriate ways to use that expression, I know God's will for your life. But there is an appropriate and responsible time to say it. When God himself has made it clear through his word what is his will for his people, we can with all confidence say, this is indeed God's will for your life. Now the passage that we're looking at this morning even contains the word, this is God's will for you. But that doesn't mean to think that when we approach the Bible we should take maybe the five to ten verses that have that phrase in it and think, these are the only ones I need to know. It's not like God has got some of his commandments that he really loves and they're the only ones he wants you to keep and the others are optional. Everything which God calls us to in his word is God's will for our life. The things that we're looking at this morning 
And we're expanding on some of the things that he's previously said. Back in chapter 2, Paul wrote, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul that way says, this is what our ministry was all about. We encourage, we exhort, we do everything that you might live a life that is worthy of God. We see similar wording in our passage this morning. Now he's, he's compelling them to, to live or to walk in a way which is pleasing to God. But some of the things that we look at this morning are an expansion of what we looked at last week. Paul was talking about and praying to God that he might be able to return to the Thessalonians, saying we're praying most earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And if the natural flow of the letter is any indication, what we see is what he's talking about, what is lacking in their faith, isn't him teaching them something he hasn't taught them before, but something that he has already taught them, he's reminding them again because they haven't taken it on board. Now, my parents have been here with us for the last couple of weeks. They're not here in church this morning. But they can testify to the fact that you can tell people things multiple times and still not actually get the result you want. And this seems to be the case, as Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, some of the things he's already taught them, he's now exhorting them and encouraging them to live in accordance to what they already know. So as we go through these eight verses, we're going to look at living to please God in the first two verses. God's will for sex in verses 3 to 7. And then a reminder that disobedience is in fact rejecting God in verse 8. But first, living to please God. The verse opens up with the words, finally. And this is where all the jokes come out about pastors who say finally in their sermons. And then they go for another 20 minutes and raise another five topics in the process. But it's probably not the best way to translate it. It's got there. Now, depending on your Bible versions, you might have something that says, furthermore, or it might say, as to what remains to be unsaid, because it's not the last point that Paul is making. What Paul is about to communicate is something he's already instructed when he was amongst them. But not only has he instructed them, but it is something which comes with the full authority of Jesus Christ. He says, finally, brothers, as we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that just as you receive from us, already taught you, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you, again, past tense, through the Lord Jesus. So he's taught them this. It comes from Jesus, comes with the full authority of Jesus. He brings these things before them. We see the repetitious nature of this is reminding them what they already know. Just look at some of the samples in the verses which we've got. Verse, first part of verse 1, as you received already from us, that you might do so more and more, that you know the instructions we gave to you and as we've already told you beforehand. Now, if we could summarise what Paul has told them beforehand, we go back to chapter 2 where he says, we did everything that you might live lives that are worthy of God. 
that your pursuit might be to please God in every way. It almost seems a little bit unnecessary, doesn't it? To think that you would need to remind Christians that you should live in a way that is pleasing to God. When you consider that God created us and everything, has abundantly blessed us with everything we have and enjoy, we turn our back on him saying, nah, thanks for the stuff, we don't want you. Do things our own way, mess up the world. We know we're deserving of death. We're without hope. God, out of his love, sends Jesus into the world to bear our punishment on our behalf so not only we could be forgiven, but we could be blessed with a relationship with him now and an eternity of perfection with him. Doesn't it make sense that we'd want to live a life pleasing to this one who who has so lavishly poured out his love and grace on us? But it's human nature, isn't it? The more we become familiar with something the less special it becomes within our mind. We lose our sense of wonder. This should be our guiding principle for everything we do. Is this pleasing to God? We see that expressed in the first part of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Those from a Presbyterian background will be familiar with it. I should have done a pop quiz and not put it on the screen. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is the first point it says. Our our goal, what we are designed to do, is to please God, to bring him glory and enjoy him forever. Now, I'm sure there's not a Christian in this room who disagrees with that statement. But I'm wondering of the percentage of those who agree with the statement... When it comes to the everyday making of decisions, what percentage of people actually think in their mind, what is the most pleasing God to God option that we have before us? Because sometimes asking that question of what is most pleasing to God might not be the answer which is most attractive to us. Because, because of the hardness of our heart, because of the, the, the fleshly nature within us, Sometimes what is most pleasing to God is not the most attractive to us. However, because it is a God who loves us and cares for us, it is always the most beneficial for us. When Paul commands them to live to please God and to do so more and more, he does it in the context of saying, as you already are doing and I've loved that over the last couple of weeks. If we see Paul's heart for the Thessalonians, he talks about things which he's already commended them for doing well and then encourages them to do so more and more. That we would never settle for close enough, good enough for God. That this God who has sent his son and given his life for us, that we should want to give him all glory and honour and thanks. But as Paul begins to address some of these things that were lacking in their faith, the first thing which he looks at, which we're looking at this morning, is with regards to their sexual conduct. Now, there'll be a lot of people who hear this, particularly people who don't know Jesus, think, oh, here we go again. Christians banging on about sex and how they're taking all the fun out of it. 
But it's certainly a fair question to ask. When Paul's talking about encouraging people to live a life that's pleasing to God, why would sex be the first thing that he speaks about? Now, Paul himself doesn't answer that question, but there's a few reasonable conclusions. The first is that sex has power. There are news stories all around the world of people who have done things because of the the promise of sex or because of the attraction to sex. You often hear about in a workplace things, oh, who do I have to sleep with to get here? The idea that no amount of money, no amount of working hard would do it, but this will. Not only does it have a strong control over people, Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, a town where they've only had a Christian presence for two years and the local religious practices that most of the people have come out of, we saw in chapter 1, verse 9, these people have turned from idols, so from the local religions, to the true and living God, and the local religions had temple prostitutes. Sexual immorality was part of the religious experience that they'd come from. So there's another reason why it would be prominent. And then lastly, from a historical point of view, the historians say that the the Roman period underneath the Caesars was probably the most immoral time in all human history. So there's this strong pull of sexual desire that affects and controls many people. But just because of the surroundings, the setting they're in, they've got good reasons that they need to be reminded of these things. Just to give you a bit of an idea of the mindset of the time, one of the Roman philosophers speaks of it this way. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children. That is the kind of mindset around sexuality in the, in the culture in which Paul is writing to. So you can see why it's a predominant issue. But as Paul brings it before them, He's not just saying, this would be my preference. This is what I am teaching you. He puts it out very clearly in the third verse. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. He puts it straight up, out front. This is God's will, your sanctification. It's a big word. Sanctification just means that you become more holy, Or even more simply, that your conduct becomes more moral, more pure, and particularly more like Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 to say that part of the reason why God has chosen us is that we would become conformed to the image of Jesus. We were in the beginning created in the image of God. When mankind sinned, we didn't entirely lose that. It was corrupted. And as we are restored in relationship through Jesus Christ, then we are to become more and more reflectors of his image. It's not only God's will that we become sanctified, that we ongoing grow to become more and more like Jesus, but it's a necessary evidence that we actually have come into a relationship with Jesus. Those who are old enough to remember the Billy Graham Crusades You remember the song they'd always sing, come just as you are. And it's true, we we don't reach a particular moral, ethical standard before we're ready to come to Jesus. 
But while we are to come just as we are, we are never to stay as we are. We come to Jesus as sinners and we enter into a relationship with him and into the process of sanctification, of becoming more and more like Christ. Paul says it's God's will and it is expected of every Christian. Because let's face it, it doesn't make much sense not to, does it? You come to this point of remorse of that you have rejected God, you've rebelled against him, you thought it was worthy of death, and you're thankful that Jesus has paid the price from that and that he set you free from it. What sense would it make to go back and intentionally plan to live the rest of your life doing the thing that you were convicted was worthy of death and that you're thankful that Jesus set you free from? The Bible uses the terms when we respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. Repentance isn't just being sorry, having a few tears. It means sorrow and 180 degree turn. Turning from living to please ourselves to living to please God. For the Thessalonians, surrounded by immorality and surrounded by views of morality that were very different to the teaching of the Bible. Not much different than us, is it? The setting in which we live in, people around us would have a very different and a very narrower view of what might be immoral in the sexual realm. I remember reading a government report out of Germany suggesting that incest should become legalised. After all, the issue was all around about genetics and why not? You just use contraception or you can abort, they said. I've even seen discussions raised in our own country that pedophilia, why not? As long as they're too concerning, no one's doing anyone any harm, they say. It's a very different view than what God puts forward before us. It's worth saying, nowhere does the Bible call people to a particular sexual standard who are not God's people. Nowhere does it call an unbeliever to live according to a particular standard. But consistently throughout the Bible from start to finish, those who are in relationship with God, they are called to flee from immorality, to avoid, to abstain. May not even a hint of it be named amongst you. So what is this sexual immorality that Paul is telling to avoid, to abstain from? Well, the Greek word is porneia, and it's not hard to think about what some of the English words that come from there. But if we're going to understand what the word means, if we're talking about what is the will of God, and what a term that God is using in his word, then we need to let God define his terms, not allow our modern culture surrounding us to define the terms. So what does this word mean? Simply in the Bible, this word means any sexual activity that is outside of marriage between a man and his wife. The Bible's definition of this sexual immorality is any sexual activity that is not between a husband and their wife within marriage. So the Bible uses this term to talk about adultery. A married person having sexual relations with someone outside of their marriage. 
The Bible uses this term for sexual immorality for people having sex before they are married. Even if they're, they are a couple and even if they're engaged and they're exclusively committed to one another. The Bible uses this term for people having sex with someone of the same gender. Anything outside of sexual relationships within marriage between a man and a woman, the Bible calls sexual immorality. This is what Paul is saying is the will of God, our sanctification, that we avoid anything that's not sex within marriage between a husband and a wife. So when people say that Jesus never spoke about homosexuality, that's actually a false statement. It's true to say that Jesus never used the term homosexuality, but he did very clearly say that marriage and the sexual relationship was between a man and a woman, as it always has been from the beginning, And Jesus says any other type of relationship he calls sexual immorality. And so to the Thessalonians and to all of us as Christians, God's will is not only that we abstain, which might sound just a little bit weak, but we flee. Elsewhere it says that not even a hint of sexual immorality being named among you. As in this idea of fleeing, don't even put yourself in an environment where it's a possibility to be tempted. Now, those of you who have decided to go on a health kick at some point have probably gone down to the shops and thought, I'm not even going down the chocolate aisle because you think there's a temptation there, I'm not going to go there. Or if you're really hardcore, you might think, I'm doing click and collect, so I don't even need to go through a checkout that's got chocolates there. That's what it means to flee, to avoid temptation. It's not because if you go down the chocolate aisle, the chocolate's going to grab you, pin you on the ground and force itself in your mouth. (laughs) Although if you do, I'm not going to pay for it. (laughs) It's just an idea of avoiding temptation. And the same goes with regards to sexual immorality and fleeing from it. Don't put yourself in a position where that's a possibility. Unfortunately, the statistics are overwhelming when it comes to sexual sin. It is so rarely one step where it just happens. In the overwhelming majority of cases, it's the end result of accumulation of many smaller steps along the way. Whether it be an inappropriate friendship, the way in which two people talk to one another, begins to be just a hypothetical fantasy in the mind or one of both of them, maybe fueled by watching some pornography, and then the opportunity is there and the temptation is taken. Paul's first statement about a life pleasing to God is to avoid any hint of sexual immorality. But it seems he's addressing a particular situation And I wish he was a little bit clearer in explaining that for us. Verse 4, he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour. And you might read that and think, I know you're tired, Steve, but it seems pretty straightforward to me. What do you mean it's difficult? The difficulty is there are two phrases or words in that verse that are difficult to interpret. If you've got different Bible versions in front of you, what you've got might say something very different to what's on the screen. That is because the first one, which the ESV has got how to control, that's not normally the way that word is translated. It normally means to acquire or to obtain something. 
rather than to gain control of it. And the second part, where the ESV has got body, literally means vessel. And the most common interpretation is a container or an object. So you can see why there's diversity in your different Bible translations. We don't want to spend too much time on it, but I just want to quickly give you an overview of the different thoughts that go through there. Particularly regarding vessel, the GSV has got body. It's spoken of as being a person, using that word for a vessel in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, when it talks about us being jars of clay. In Acts 9, 15, when it says, Paul is my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So it does have that, that use of being referred to as a person. In 1 Samuel 21, verse 5, it is used and spoken of as the male sexual organ. And in 1 Peter 3, 7, the word vessel, when it says, husband, be considerate and understanding of your wife as the weaker vessel. So when people are interpreting this verse, all of those three options are before them. And I just want to quickly say what they would mean and what their difficulties are. If it's talking about controlling one's own body, or controlling or acquiring, that would fit with some of Paul's other teaching. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about how your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore glorify God in the way in which you use your body. It makes sense in the context of what's being spoken of in this chapter that we're looking at. The difficulty is that if the most normal understanding of the term that's translated as control is to acquire or obtain, we've already got bodies. You don't really gain one later on. Or if it comes to the the genitals, the male sexual organs, the meaning again is very similar about using your body because sexual amorality involves using your body. Again, you've still got the issue of acquiring something. Then lastly, some will say that they'll take the normal meaning of obtaining or acquiring, saying that, that you should acquire or obtain a wife so that you don't enter into sexual immorality. There's a few difficulties with that one too. It's good that it uses the natural meaning of that word to acquire, take possession of something, but it says this is what each of you should do. Not only does that make it man-specific, but that's almost making it like the will of God is that every single man must have a wife. And it doesn't make much sense when it says that one of the reasons why we should um, abstain from sexual immorality is so that we don't sin against your brother and I don't know how not taking a wife sins against someone. So now you know why all your Bibles say something different. Best option, just go the vague and leave it as vessel, why not? But, but body still makes good sense in terms of Paul's greater teaching on the subject. Going with body makes it clear that sex outside of the marriage does sin against other people. And the whole idea that sex should just be between a man and a woman in marriage shows the contrast that Paul's making, the differences between what he's calling them to and the Gentiles who don't know God around them in their passions of their flesh. Because it's very different to what the surrounding prevailing views was for them. You'll note that Paul's not surprised that the unbelievers embrace immorality. He says, don't be like the people around you who don't know God. Remember when you look at the first chapter of Romans, it says that it's expected. People who turn their back on God will live sexually immoral lives. Don't be surprised. 
And all of this, he says in verse 6, we have already told you and warned you because God has called you to, impu- to purity, not to impurity, to lives of holiness. The Bible is full of it. Be holy, for I am holy. The fact that Paul needs to repeat it shows us something of the gravity, the strength the pull of sexual desire has, and the control it has on people. But it also may reflect the lack of seriousness that he's here as a first taking it up with. So it's helpful to remind her of the seriousness of disobedience. When we think about it, when we first came to trust in Christ, it's because we realised our rebellion against God was worthy of death. That we needed to trust in him, we needed to repent. It's funny how quickly we kind of forget that. How we can become comfortable with the things that at one point we thought were so abhorrent that they were worthy of death. Unfortunately, my partial experience, the one area of anyone's life that I find the most difficult to provide biblical input, it is always relationships every time. When people are so closely tied with someone, they love them so much, even if the Bible tells them what they're doing is wrong, they just don't want to hear it. But Paul goes on to say that whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He says, to live contrary to the word of God or even the word of God as taught through a friend or a pastor, you're not rejecting man or the teachings of man. It's actually to reject God himself. Because all of God's commandments are a reflection of his character. It's not just disagreeing with him on something. To live otherwise is to reject the very character of God and show disdain for the very character of God. Whether you're in full-time paid ministry or if you're just a regular everyday follower of Jesus, it's helpful to remember this. When you're talking to somebody else about the things of God, about the truths that God has made known in his word, When people take it out on you, don't take it too personally. It's not particularly you that they're they're angry against. But against, as Paul says, they're not opposing the word of men, but God himself. We're just stewards of God's message. If you're talking about talking to someone who doesn't know Jesus, the Bible tells us the natural man is hostile to the things of God. Don't be surprised. Hence why we also pray. Not just when we're dealing with unbelievers, when we're praying with, dealing with one another in-house. Change only takes place when God works in the lives of his people. We've seen that throughout First Thessalonians. Paul gives thanks to God for what he's done in them, not for their behaviour modification they've done themselves. But for a Christian to reject the commands of God is almost a contradiction. To call Jesus Lord means Master. And then every time we reject, rebel, which we all incline to do, we oppose him as Lord. It's to resist the indwelling Holy Spirit that God has given us, who is the means through which we have got these commands, who has inspired the scriptures, but is also the very presence of God living within us, who desires 
to work in us, to work in our sanctification, to make us more like Christ. It's helpful reminder, that one, that the one who inspired the very words of Scripture, who calls us to the hard things on it, lives within us. So what? Well, there's two things I want to finish with. One is why is sexual morality important? And then secondly, it's just a big challenge for all of us. Why is morality and sexual morality important? You could say the old-fashioned cliche, God settles it, I believe God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you need to be live according this way because of the harm it does to others. What about the rebellion against God? What about the broken families that it causes? All good reasons. But there's a much deeper reason than that. You'll have people say, well, it's okay as long as we're not doing anyone any harm. But there's still more to it than whether or not somebody's being harmed. Everything we have God created. God created mankind. God even created sex and he created it as good. Often when I'm doing premarital counselling, couples will always struggle with the fact that we're so kind of minding people about the dangers of sexual immorality, they're worried that are they going to feel guilty on their wedding night? Sex is good in its right context. God created it to be good. But when you create something... You create it for a reason, don't you? You don't tend to make something for no reason whatsoever unless you've got plenty of time up your sleeve. Just as God created man and woman in his image and he brought them together as husband and wife, said, go forth and multiply. He brought them into that closeness of the union of one as a reflection of them as being image bearers of God, of the three in one united God. Jesus himself repeated, he said, from the beginning, may the male and female, let no one separate. Not only has God established a standard and a purpose for sex within creation, but the New Testament builds on that in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul speaks of the marriage relationship as a reflection of the gospel and a reflection of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. And right in the middle of that, sex is the pinnacle expression of that union. So this is where sexual morality becomes a big issue. If the sexual union was designed to be an expression and a proclamation of Jesus Christ and the church and a proclamation of the gospel, any time we distort God's view of sexual immorality, we distort and project a vision of God and his gospel that is very different than the one we want to be proclaiming. We obscure and we misrepresent Jesus and the gospel. Let me just provide a couple of examples of how that picture becomes corrupted. When you're talking about sex before marriage, sexual immorality, it's like coming into that union before a covenant, before a commitment has been made, would give the implication if that was supposed to communicate Jesus and his people... It would kind of communicate that you just come together without a commitment with Jesus, like people are saved willy-nilly. A commitment's not necessary. 
In the case of adultery, going outside of a committed relationship to rebel would give the impression that either God will give up on us and go for someone else or would give the impression that we are so dissatisfied with God we need to look for a better and more satisfying option. Or if we're talking about a same-sex sexual union, with the sexual union supposed to be an expression of the uniqueness between Christ and the church, a same-sex expression would say, well, we're all just all evil level playing field, just two people on equal ground. There's no distinction between Jesus and the church. No church can tell Jesus what to do, Jesus can tell church what to do. Either way, it doesn't matter. These have implications for the gospel. These have implications for what we say about Jesus in our world. So brothers and sisters who want to live lives pleasing to God, who wanted to see Jesus and the gospel proclaimed, stop playing with the things that we know displease him and tarnish his name. Now it's all very well and easy to say that, but I now, if I left, finished the sermon there, I'm sure there'd be a whole lot of people who'd be leaving this room with a massive, deep, dirty guilt. And that's not my intention at all. We've already mentioned, this has massive, strong influence. Probably no sin has stronger power and influence than sexual sin. And it is hard. I would encourage you, if you're dealing with things from past or even present, that just you find a brother or sister in church here that you know and trust, that you can share with, that they can not only just pray with you as a once-off, but they can journey with you. You know the reason why we normally don't talk to one another about this stuff? It's because we're scared that the other person's going to condemn us or judge us. Yet I think any time where I've seen these discussions take place, usually people are shocked that what they find is support. Sympathy. Often the person says, yeah, I know, I struggle with that. And all of a sudden you thought you were the only person who'd ever struggled with it and you find out other Christians struggle with sexual stuff. So find someone, pray with them, journey with them, see how we can help one another. We've been talking the last few weeks about caring for one another spiritually. Here's an opportunity to do it and an opportunity to ask for our brothers and sisters to care for us spiritually. Lastly, it's a challenge for us all. The challenge to flee from sexual immorality applies to every one of us. Old, young, male, female, married, single. We live in a sexualized world full of very different views of what is considered acceptable, moral. It's not a case of preparing just in case maybe one day you might get tempted. You will have temptation thrown in your face whether it be just clicking around on your phone and something pops up, whether it be a friendship that just goes across lines that shouldn't go across, you will be tempted. Not everyone's going to be necessarily tempted into, in, into a sexual relationship. Not everyone's necessarily going to get tempted with pornography. But given the gravity and the strength that it hold, has on people, It is wise to put up wise boundaries. A person who doesn't guard themselves will always be the most vulnerable person. 
The challenge is not just sex. There's a challenge about being obedient and responding to God's word. He's made it very clear to reject God's word is to reject God himself. Those of you with children will understand this analogy. You know how often when you provide some instruction to your kids, you, you love them, you give them some good instruction to do something, and they turn around at some point and they go, No! Parents, as you are thinking of deviating and turning your back on something that God has commanded you to, I want you to picture that's what you're doing to God. A God who is giving you some loving instruction for your benefit. When we choose to go the other way, that's what we're doing to him. Those who are not parents, but have had the privilege of watching your kid do that and thinking in the back of your mind, those parents really should do something about that. That's not acceptable. You are that kid. When every time we turn our back upon God, upon the the counsel that he gives us for our good. But I don't want to finish on a negative note because the Bible on its whole is not negative. Even in the verses that we've looked at, there is full of rich encouragement. When he talks about not rejecting God's commandments because you're rejecting God, he says, because he has given us his Holy Spirit. Isn't that something to thank God for? He doesn't just give you a whole pile of instructions and say, have a good go at it. Because we know we can't. The very presence, the fullness of God dwells in you when you come to faith in Christ. The very one who's inspired and is giving these commands, which might seem burdensome, might even seem difficult, lives within you. The one that the, that the biblical author says, the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives within you. So as we're struggling with sin of any form, wouldn't it be great to turn to God in confident prayer and say, God, I thank you that you have given me your Holy Spirit who's not only the fullness of God, but who desires to transform me, to make me more like Christ, to convict me, to turn from me from things that I shouldn't be doing. Help me in this time of need because I can't do it on my own. Thank you that you have provided another helper for me. Let's close in prayer and giving thanks for what God has given us. Lord, we thank you that all you have for us is for our good. Thank you for the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit who desires to transform us to make us like Christ. Lord, we thank you that we have an advocate who intercedes on our behalf and we don't know even what or how to pray who pleads our case. We thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord, we know how often we turn, we pursue the things that just seem good at the moment then leave us feeling guilty. But Lord, we thank you that we bring them before you and they are washed white as snow. Thank you that you have given us each other as a body, that we can care for one another, we can pray, we can work alongside one another in that good purpose for which you call us to yourself to conform us more into the image of your Son, to proclaim your excellencies, your gospels by the way in which we live, and your worthiness. Work in us to that effect. In Jesus' name, amen.
you're not a big reader, you've got an entirety of three verses to read for next week, I think we can do that one.